When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Where are we going? Dunkirk. I'm not going back. There's no hiding from this sun. We have a job to do. Christopher Nolan films are many things, but they are rarely straightforward or short. So Dunkirk, his latest, based on the legendary World War II rescue effort, comes as something of a surprise. Coming in at a tidy hour 49 minutes, one hour shorter than 2014's Interstellar, the movie is a lean, old-fashioned war picture. This week, we've got a review of Dunkirk, and we finally get around to naming our top five films of 2017 so far. That and more to Dunkirk, soldier, ahead on Film Spotting. We will get to the beaches of Dunkirk, but we're going to get there via Spring Green, Wisconsin, where we recorded our top five films of the year so far, live for a small but generous audience. A little bit more peaceful beaches there in Spring Green, Wisconsin (laughs) than Dunkirk. (laughs) Yeah, we did spend the weekend there in Spring Green. It is the home of the Van Hallgrens. Sam, of course, our producer. And it's the third year that we've done this little family film spotting outing where we go to the Great American Players Theater and we take in some Shakespeare. And all of the plays we've seen have been hits overall with a family, but I think this year Midsummer Night's Dream probably was the best we've seen so far. Can you beat Midsummer Night's Dream for something to see outdoors, mm-hmm. first of all, to see it at an excellent production company like this, but also for the wide range of ages we brought with. I yep. mean, it is one of the more approachable Shakespeare plays. They did it wonderfully from the costume design to the lighting. It was really spectacular. And of course, the performances are always solid. That was true here as well. Yeah, and we are outdoors. So especially when you're talking about a Midsummer Night's Dream, they're it just coming, couldn't get better. They're coming from the actual woods on yes, the stage. That's what makes it just that extra little bit magical. We did spend some time on the water. We canoed. We had lots of talks. That's where the beaches were. The (laughs) Wisconsin River, there are all these sandbars. So you just float along, get out when you feel like it, hang out. Have a couple drinks. How'd you like the... outdoorsmanship you engaged in. You usually prefer the air conditioning. It was a beautiful day, so that couldn't have bothered you. This was an expedition I could handle. Let's just put (laughs) it it that way. It was a bit of an expedition. Along the way, we had lots of talk about skim milk versus whole milk. (laughs) My kids have really strong feelings. Yes, they do. And we had a wonderful meal 
Sam and Carrie prepared a nice meal of hot dogs and hamburgers. And I think, of course, Sam felt contractually obligated to throw in that blue apron potato salad. And it was tasty. He pulled it off. He did. They fed the whole crew. That was ambitious. He pulled it off. And just going back to Shakespeare and that production for a second, this was the first year of the three that we brought my son Quinn, who's not the youngest, but the first year he was eight, had probably just turned eight. Last year, he just turned nine. Here he is, just turned 10. And we thought, you know, he might just not be able to deal with Shakespeare, might be too young for it. We'll leave him back at the house with our youngest and with Sam's youngest. And this year, he really wanted to come. And it turns out at his school, they had done a little bit of work on A Midsummer Night's Dream. So he knew a couple lines, was vaguely familiar with the overall plot and the characters. And he Loved it. Yeah, he really I actually did. have never seen <laughs> any of my family members get that in to Shakespeare. And I studied it in college for crying out loud. But he turned to my wife at one point and said, this is awesome. Then later said, Shakespeare is awesome. So it just couldn't have been a better experience. Yeah, he was beaming. And my daughter Adeline was in A Midsummer Night's Dream at her high school just this last fall. So mm-hmm. she was watching Fairy Number 1 very closely to see if his performance matched hers. Yeah. I think she was impressed. That makes sense. The weekend did all culminate in that live taping of this week's Top 5. We recorded it live at Spring Green's Arcadia Books. It's a bookstore we love to go to when we visit. Josh, you took care of a little bit of business as well. You did a reading from your book, Movies Are Prayers. Yeah, Arcadia was kind enough to set that up, and we had a handful of folks turn out. It's it's like the dream bookstore Mm -hmm. where half of it is this fantastic coffee shop, really cafe. We always want to get lunch there because it's some of the best food in Spring Green. So it's a beautiful setup, a little space with tables and people could gather around and and talk and ask questions. Those things are always so much better when you get good questions. Mm-hmm. And I get, and you did. I got a handful of really intriguing ones. So that was fun to do. I want to thank John and the rest of the folks at Arcadia. And it worked out well to record our top five there also. It did. We had a few listeners from the Madison area come out. James actually came from Milwaukee. We had Rebecca, Soren, Zach and Lauren, and a few others. We really do appreciate the support on the road. Aside from a couple batches of milk being steamed for lattes, which you will hear probably during the taping. They are. They shut them off for your your book reading. Apparently that was definitely more important. (laughs) Which we didn't record. So interesting choice, but hey. No, it added to the overall effect. We were in a coffee house. You need to have a little bit of steamed milk. The show went off without a hitch. You can hear for yourself. And we are doing this show kind of in the reverse order of what we would normally do, where we would do the review first of Dunkirk and we'd lead up to the top five. Here we're going to lead with the top five because that's how the show was ultimately recorded. We're going to do it chronologically. We saw Dunkirk after recording the top five. So it wasn't eligible for our best of 2017 so far list. Let's take you now to Spring Green and our top five films of the year. So far, Josh is up first. So my number five, it just came out in limited release. It's Beatriz at Dinner. This is one that I saw back at Sundance in January, so at the beginning of the year for me. And it has it has lingered for me. It was nice to see generally good reviews when it came out in limited release the last few weeks. It may be one, as I was saying, that falls out of my top five by the end of the year. I haven't had a chance to revisit it yet. But I do know, I can probably guarantee that Salma Hayek's lead performance is going to be on my list of the best performances of the year. It's absolutely the strength of this film. Uh, She plays Beatrice, the title character. She's this massage therapist who gets stuck at her wealthy client's oceanside home when her car breaks down. And so the client thinks, well, why don't you just join us for this business dinner we had 
planned for tonight with my husband's boss, high stakes dinner, and things don't really go so well when you bring such drastically different classes together. Just to give you an idea, the uh, the main antagonist is uh, John Lithgow. He plays this very Trump-like CEO, and maybe it's just because I was seeing this in January, uh, but I've heard other comparisons, ma- other people make that comparison as well with the John Lithgow character. And so Salma Hayek's uh, massage therapist kind of butts heads with him at this dinner. So, where are you from? Altadena. Ah, where are you really from? I was born in Tlaltecutli, Mexico. Tlaltecutli, on the Pacific. It was very beautiful once. Mexico's awesome. I love Cancun. But now, many hotels, timeshare. A lot of crime, I think. And where are you from? Laguna. But we have houses in there. Well, we're all over. But where are you really from? I was born in Oaxaca. (laughs) No, no, I was born in San Diego. (laughs) Now I've got the giggles. (laughs) Uh, It may make it sound like it's a little bit... Uh, preachy or strident, um, but here's where I'll remind you that uh, it comes from Miguel Arteta is the director here of my beloved Cedar Rapids, primarily known for other comedies, and he absolutely brings a lighter touch to this. It's it's probably his most serious film, I would say, um, but there is there's just this wry touch to a lot of the scenes. There's a wittiness, and it's really sharp overall, and I think that's because there is a comic sensibility um, being brought to bear on what is you know, a very topical and serious topic. Hayek is, you know, she has all those qualities I just described in this role. Uh, I like how her character is clever. Her character is brazen. There isn't really much time where she feels out of place. She kind of jumps right in and lets them know what she's all about. Ultimately, though, and here's where I'm kind of still wondering about the film, because it really goes pretty far in this direction. Um, She's this tragically tender presence who finds herself in this arena where, like, kindness is just lost. There's no understanding of what that might even mean in a personal or a larger societal scale. And the more you realize the forces that are lined up against her, she's just becomes more tragic and and small and the movie becomes pretty dark in the end. So that's again, one of those things I'm wrestling with. I do want to see it again and see where I fall towards the end of the year for Beatrice at dinner. But if you're able to see it in a theater um, right now, go ahead and do that. Cause it probably won't be around too long. Yeah. Unfortunately it's one of my regrets. I think you said it, it's still only playing in limited release, right? There's yep. no other way to see it yeah. streaming or otherwise, unfortunately right now. My number five film of the year so far is one I know you've seen because we talked about it last week in some detail on the show. It's a film called A Ghost Story, and it's written and directed by David Lowry, his third film. 2013 was his debut, Ain't Them Body Saints, a little indie movie, which is what A Ghost Story is as well. And then in 2016, he made Pete's Dragon, which was this huge commercial success. And this is a film that has a plot description that starts with this sentence. Recently deceased, a white-sheeted ghost returns to his suburban home to console his bereft wife. And that is pretty much the film. Casey Affleck plays the ghost, and he is indeed wearing a white sheet the entire film. Rooney Mara is the bereft wife, and I almost hate 
to bring this up, but I want to get to a quote I saw about it, the pie scene, Josh. Mm-hmm. If anyone's seen this film or read anything about it, they may be familiar with it. As I said, we talked about it on the show in some detail. I don't want to focus more attention on it because as good as this scene is, I think the movie could lose it and it would still be in my top five of the year. But you basically watch Rooney Mara's character in her state of grief devour a pie. How long would you say the shot goes? Oh, it feels like five minutes. It's got to be about five minutes, just watching a character devour a pie. And I saw this quote from an article on IndieWire where the writer said, David Lowry says he knows that the scene has taken on a life of its own, and he's okay if people leave during it. So it is that kind of a scene, (laughs) and I think that it is a microcosm for the whole movie in the sense that your experience with it, Lowry is forcing us to observe life and death in a way not enough movies ask us to do, and that can be uncomfortable. And he has very much made a film that, I'm not surprised to hear that he's okay with people saying, you know what, this just, this just isn't for me. I, I've, I've thrown in the towel. But if you stick with it, there is a lot of satisfaction to be drawn from it. I, I said during our review that the score of the film, the music mm-hmm. is such a key component of the film. Daniel Hart is the composer. It's my favorite of the year so far. And it's, it's undeniably a cinematic undertaking. It's all about framing and movement and editing and that sound and that score. But... I think of it like standing in front of a great painting that you find yourself transfixed by, where this artist has expressed him or herself, created this really fully realized world, but now it's on you as the viewer to react and to respond to it. And uh, what I especially appreciate is that there are a lot of movies that explore deep themes, like this movie does, mortality and grief, but with a ghost story, we both noted this, you really feel the weight of it, which I think is more important than just necessarily intellectually processing it. For sure. I don't know why anyone would leave through the pie-eating scene, because you've never seen anything like that, though. (laughs) And when a filmmaker does this, I'm just fascinated, are they really going to be able to sustain this? First of all, are they really going to do this? Is she really going to eat this whole pie? Um, But it's not a stunt because it's born out of, I think we started talking about it when we were describing Mara's performance of just the weight of grief that she's Mm -hmm. feeling. And I think that scene starts with her attempting to even do the dishes, just an everyday chore that becomes too much to bear. And she sees this pie, someone's left and grabs it as, I think I described it as almost a defense if she's eating, she won't cry. Um, And it lets us sit with her that whole time, which is emblematic of what the film does so well. I talked about its stillness and that's what remains with me. I can't remember another film that is this quiet um, where the camera is there, you know, very few edits, long scenes of just watching this ghost, watch her or other characters in other scenes. And there's something mesmerizing about it. And that's where you feel the loneliness. I Mm -hmm. think that's why it it does work that way. I thought you were going to have it higher actually on your list. I've got it here on number four. So it's number four for me. And yeah, we did cover it quite a bit. So maybe I'll mention one other scene I don't think we got to. And you had talked a little bit about the alighting of time in the film Mm -hmm. and how we were supposed to, to take that. There's this sequence. It feels like a single shot, even though it can't be because it's of Mara's character leaving for work every morning from the same fixed angle. So she leaves, I believe, a bedroom, grabs keys off a table, goes off the door. And we see her do that. And without a break, without a cut, she comes back out of the bedroom again and does it again. And of course, as so much of the framing in this film, I believe the ghost is on a couch and we see in the foreground. Or we understand that the ghost is there. Maybe there's a two shot. And so we understand that this ghost is watching this action 
so many days in a row. And there are subtle performance changes too, where it gets easier for her to leave. You feel like that first day, I don't know if it's the actual first day, she's still wearing that weight of grief and even leaving the house feels like a burden. By the time she does it, maybe the third or fourth time, she's a little quicker. She's back in her routine and we're watching it from the ghost's perspective and you feel how there's this gap between them that the ghost senses there. So that's just an example of how the camera work uh, is used and other elements to really create this essence. And I I was afraid you were going to do this too. I wanted to quote Michael Phillips, who's on the show, because he had a really good review of a ghost story. um, And you've now heard us go on and on about it. So here's from Michael's review. A ghost story sustains a mood of rapt expectation better than just about anything I've seen this year. Plenty of novels and plays and movies have dealt with this narrative setup from blockbuster schlock ghost with a sexy pottery interlude to methodical serial comedy, truly madly deeply. This film squanders nothing and rushes very little. So Michael, you know, as always finds the right words for describing it. I hope that encourages you to see a ghost story. If you haven't, it, this one's still in theater. So maybe the rare case where all three of us are in agreement. Yeah, that might, you're right. Often Michael's so. on the show telling us how wrong we are and <laughs> we appreciate that. But yeah, a ghost story is only playing, unfortunately in limited release. So if you're near one of those big cities and have a chance to see it, I'm not sure about the, the DVD release at this point. My number four is a film that basically I'm going from a dead guy in a bedsheet to uh, a girl and her best friend, in this case, a super pig. Okja made it, huh? Yeah, Okja made it. So I, I did a little bit of last-minute cramming. Last night, I fit in the movie that I promised on last week's show I was definitely going to see, and it's the latest from the South Korean director, Bong Joon-ho. He's best known for probably Memories of Murder and The Host and also uh, recently Snowpiercer. He's covering some similar ground here. That was a film about... It was a future dystopia, I suppose we could describe it. Humans herded together on a train that's just traveling the globe because the rest of the world has become so inhospitable. And the humans are, let's say, processed. Here, it's pigs. And this is a film that mainly does focus on this little girl. She's been basically best friends with a a super pig. It's a gigantic creature. has been the caretaker to it. And... Ultimately, it's the property of a large corporation called the Mirando Corporation, and they make sausage. But they've been raising these super pigs as part of some marketing campaign, and now it's time to actually bring the pig back. And, of course, when the young girl, whose name is Mija, realizes what's going on, she's not going to let her best friend go and is determined to get her back once they do take Okja The cast is phenomenal. Tilda Swinton is the CEO of the company, who's so good in Snowpiercer. And Jake Gyllenhaal is this animal doctor TV personality. And I'll just say it right now. I hate to predispose you, Josh, but Sam and I on the way here, we're talking about how we we know you haven't seen it yet, and we have. Mm -hmm. There's no way you're going to be on board with Jake Gyllenhaal's performance. There's just no way. Bye. Bye. Oh, I guess I'm still hip in Korea. (laughs) The kids at home don't really appreciate me anymore. But here... I'm sorry if I was a little grumpy when I first came to the farm. But, you know, being a television presenter can be stressful. (laughs) I always have to be on. It's just, it's so big and so comical and goofy and silly, but we both are on board with it. Paul Dano shows up as well and I think gives a really good performance as the leader of the Animal Liberation Front. And they are, they are out there to save Okja and basically every living creature. I do want to note... Giancarlo Esposito, who's an actor who I have not seen in a lot of films recently, he's in a small role. He plays Tilda Swinton's kind of 
second, you know, second in command, security guy. Really good. Every moment he's on screen, he's, he's really fun to watch. It's a funny film. It's a sad film. It's a horrifying film at times, but it's also really hopeful. And it is ultimately on the actress, I want to make sure I get the name right, on So Hyun, Asmija, and Okja, who carry the movie. It's that relationship, and it's the way Bong depicts it, because he constantly reinforces the super pig's presence. It's obviously the CGI construction, and it never feels that way. So that adds to the sense of reality. There's a creature there, an actual creature, not just a CGI creation. But I think it also adds to the sense of it being something more than just a creature, a mindless or soulless creature, which is ultimately one of the points of the film. So we get scenes like Mija early on in this idyllic setting in the mountains taking a nap on Okja's belly. And there's another scene, there's a couple of scenes where we see a piece of shrapnel coming out or, or something that's gotten wedged in her hoof being removed. Even something as small as during a big action scene, someone, it might be Mija, drops a bag on the floor and the, and the pig walks on and you see it stepping on the bag. It's just always reinforcing that there's a, a physical mm-hmm. presence there as much as the movie can do. And... You know, we talked about Baby Driver last week on the show, and it's a film that everyone loves for the choreography of the action scenes, and that was what we appreciated, too, most about that film. But Bong Joon-ho is a master. There are some wonderful long takes here, and there's beautiful imagery, and there's a lot of scenes I could choose from, but the one I'm just going to mention quickly is watching Mija in a traffic tunnel. It's a super chaotic action sequence, a heist, where basically that, that group is trying to steal Okja, And Mija just stands on the hood of a car in this tunnel and shouts the name Okja. And the world just stops as Okja recognizes that sound. And it's it's a beautiful shot in terms of the way you see the, the depth of the cars behind her. And you get a sense of the chaos of the moment and how really it's all just about their connection and Bong like I said I think he's a master and uh, Okja definitely worked for me and I'm glad that I saw it now that I know it sounds pretty much like a Charlotte's Web redo there's a little bit of that a little Charlotte's Web there is the a little future. bit of Charlotte's okay, Web yeah I want to see it even more now you I... can see it it's on Netflix so it's playing exclusively on Netflix if you have a subscription that is where you can see Okja so that shows you a little bit why Adam has so much more dedication than me that he last night after a long day canoeing on the river, mm-hmm. and, you know, we're all just exhausted. Who does his homework? Adam does his homework. Not yeah. me. Watches Okja. He also watched or at least made it through some of my number I three. Did. I just found out. Yep. I can't imagine. I saw this movie at a midnight showing at Sundance, which was disturbing enough. Um, and I had someone with me there. You're up alone in the middle of the night watching well, Raw. I wasn't, I wasn't alone. I had a hotel room full of I hope your kids. family was asleep while they you were, were watching Raw. <laughs> I don't know if anyone is familiar with this film. It is kind of in limbo right now. I think it might be streaming. The DVD release is September 7. came out maybe a month or two ago. It has stuck with me till this point of the year. It follows a French vegetarian veterinary student who develops an insatiable desire for meat. And this is while she's undergoing some really extreme hazing as a first year student at this very strange vet school. I don't know if this is really how they do it in Europe, but <laughs> I, hope I sincerely 
Hope not. Uh, things get much, much ickier from that premise, but some people are eating here. I'm going to leave it there. I'll just say her taste in meat expands considerably, and the movie does not hold back. This is really intense. It's also one of those potent horror experiences, and these are the ones that I really I'm drawn to, where it can be it can bend itself to whatever metaphor you like. And I've already read multiple takes on. Well, this is what this girl's experience means. Um, for me, on the first watch, it was you know simply a commentary on the ravenous human appetite and how difficult it can be to control because it's not just the meat that she indulges in. Um, so it works on that level. But really, however you read it, uh, Raw is this incredibly formidable debut film, which is what really struck me from director Julia Ducarneau has a bold vision. Um, it has a striking use of the frame, which adds you wouldn't think you'd need any more eeriness just you know with that unsettling setup but the way she will often position a figure alone and small in a frame lets you know that something is off it's one of these horror movies where you know something is off in the first four seconds and it just confirms that so it's a work of immense promise and those are really the qualities we talk about when we describe um what we want to look for in a film spotting golden brick um, nominee, the award we give at the end of the year for a, a filmmaker who's put something out, a new filmmaker like this. So that is one of our candidates. We're here at the halfway point. We've got a, work, a lot of work to do in terms of watching other potential candidates, but um, Raw is on that list and also on my list of the best of the year so far. So I did before starting Okja. I got 50 minutes in to Raw. Can I guess where you hit stop? I was going to tell I you, but yes, it. go for it, please. Um, well, I don't want to spoil things. Uh, a certain menu choice? No. You no, did. it was actually not, though. I think that was before it. Okay. So I will say about Ducarneau that the vision is so bold. And so the, this world is, is so fully realized that it's hard to be watching it. In You feel like you're in that physical space with this character going through this kind of horrific experience and then on top of it you're so connected with her that you feel like you're going through it psychologically as well so it's it's a little bit of a tough sit and it finally got too much for me as much as i I really appreciated it i can't wait to finish the film actually but i knew it was time to turn it off all i'll say is it involved a brazilian wax and a severed finger so that's the kind of movie Thanks. Raw now is. You've canceled food orders for the rest of the afternoon. Sorry, I just, sorry, I just wanted to be as specific as possible about where I finally had to turn off okay, the film. But, I got it. I but, got it and understand. Yes. My number three is a movie that has been a big hit this year and played in a lot of theaters out in wide release. It is Get Out, the film from Jordan Peele that did win there you go some applause (laughs) well deserving it won our listeners poll we recently announced the results of in terms of we asked our audience the best film of the year so far one with 33 percent of the vote i think this is a movie we talked about this a lot during our review though that was several months ago now at this point i think it resonated with so many people for a lot of reasons namely how well written it is and how well acted and well directed but also the genius of the movie is the way it taps into universal fears so there's that line that the main character chris and this is a film about uh, a young black man who's going home to meet the parents of his white girlfriend. And he says to another character in the film when he arrives on their estate, I just get a little nervous around too many white people. So <laughs> this movie takes that fear and takes it to the nth degree. For white people, no matter how progressive, there's that sense of being careful not to ever say or do something that might be perceived 
the wrong way. So in a, I think an entertaining but really provocative way, this film gets at the ongoing issue that we Americans have with truly dealing with race. And that gap can almost lead to this problem of politeness we see with the Chris character in the film, where no matter how disturbing everything gets, no matter how crazy all the behavior and all the signs are, he, he simply chooses to ignore it, basically. He rationalizes it away. He doesn't want to confront the potential reality. So I think the movie has a lot on its mind, and I think that one of the best summations of that feeling as an audience member we get watching it, I think Amy Nicholson in her MTV News review really nailed it. She said, our suspicions are so heightened, we start to second-guess our own senses. Mm. And I, I think that so the experience I certainly had watching the film, I think it's the experience a lot of people had with Get Out, and why, again, in addition to it being laugh out loud funny at yeah, times and sure. also terrifying scary, at times right. yeah it's it's all these things it's another film like raw that is at its core a horror movie even if it's not doing traditional horror things yeah i'll get to get out pretty soon here on my list but first i want to talk about the beguiled which did land at number two i reviewed this recently with guest host angelica bastien so you can go back a few episodes if you want to hear our long discussion about that i do think that this marks for sofia coppola it's it's a distillation of and and also a little bit of an advancement of this thing she's always circled around and it's the interior lives of women who are you know they're so comfortable they have such comfortable lives on the surface but things are roiling underneath and here she explores that again but the step forward is that it's with this ensemble cast who really gets its due you can go all the way from you know the young una lawrence to 50 year old nicole kidman and each of these characters as they encounter this uh wounded union soldier who arrives at the foot of their school. This is, if you're unfamiliar with the film, takes place, I think, in uh, 1864, Virginia. Sounds right. And um, they take him in. So he's kind of like a patient slash prisoner. But you really sense what that means for each of the different girls or women who are in this cast. And yes, this is a narrow setting. Angelica and I talked about that a little bit, how you know, there's no real recognition of historical elements like slavery or even the war, though I love how there's always the cannons rumbling in the background. That's a great detail. Um, but otherwise, it's really just concerned with what's going on in these particular rooms. But that sort of narrowness allows for what Coppola does so well. It's this sumptuous specificity. The attention to the wardrobes, the dresses that are worn, the food that is served and prepared, um, you know, even the way the candles, uh, they're, they're using candles to light everything, that changes when the mood of the film changes or depending what room they're, on, they're in or depending what social activity they're engaged in. So this is a little world. It's, there's a l much bigger world beyond it that does also deserve attention. But um, for the world it concentrates on, it's, it's richly realized. It's deeply unsettling. So I do think this is one of Coppola's best. And it is still in theaters. I don't know how mm -hmm. wide, but um, you can seek it out and, and see it on the big screen, which you should, because the cinematography is absolutely one of the highlights. Yeah, I can't wait. As you said, you reviewed it with a guest host. I was traveling that week, and I still haven't been able to make time to see it. So I am looking forward to seeing The Beguiled and weighing in on it. Hopefully we can talk about it at some point on the show. My number two is a movie that came out I think just about three weeks ago, and it's a romantic comedy called The Big Sick. It's a film that depicts the real-life courtship of Kumail Nanjiani and Emily V. Gordon. They wrote the screenplay, and Nanjiani plays himself in the film. He's a comic, Pakistani-American, and he falls in love with 
a white woman, Emily, and they, they have their, their issues in the form of some secrets they're keeping from each other. Namely, he's keeping from her the fact that he can't really tell his family about her because they're not going to be on board with him ever being long-term with a white woman. And they also then have the issue of a sudden illness that she comes down with that leaves her in a coma. And now he's in an even more awkward position where their relationship's been in kind of a rocky state, but now she's terribly sick. Her parents show up. So I don't know, maybe this doesn't sound like a romantic comedy <laughs> so far. It's not pretty bleak. And, and yet that's what makes the film, I think, so special. Ultimately, it is a romantic comedy, and it does get into some of those more serious topics. But it's also one of the best movies about comedians and about the, the world of comics. I think Nagiani talked about this in my interview with him on the show, how they approach those those scenes, the performance scenes, and there are a lot of them. I think you see it a lot, unfortunately, in movies where you have actors playing comics who just aren't that funny. The material's not that good, necessarily. Or you have legitimately decent comics who, for whatever reason, they've got an audience in front of them who they're performing. You can mm-hmm. tell that the audience is, is in this state of kind of forced laughter. And so you never really kind of buy it. And here, all the people who are portrayed as comedians are actual comedians, and they're all genuinely funny. But they also perform these scenes in front of an audience where they just told them, you're coming to a comedy show, just react the way you would if you came to a comedy show. And so you get this real genuine feeling there watching those scenes. And when, when the audience laughs, we're laughing too, because that's the funniest bit, or a funnier bit than something they said 30 seconds ago. It does have other things on its mind too. One of the things I talked to Kumail about was its take on masculinity. It's got multiple male characters, including his character, who have a trouble being really honest with themselves or the people they love because they just refuse to let themselves appear vulnerable. And we also get these hospital scenes that feel really honest and aren't amped up for melodrama. And it's a film, the best way I can describe it is the way I described it to Kamel, which is I spent the last 20 minutes of it in this bizarre state where I was smiling the whole time and also on the verge of tears. And for a movie to pull that off, I think, is something pretty special. It also has a great performance from Ray Romano. I think he's probably going to get some Oscar buzz for Best Supporting Actor as Emily's father in the film. Obviously not the, the type of role we think of Ray Romano playing, but he's really fantastic. It helps that he's playing opposite Holly Hunter as his wife, and she's always good. She's Holly Hunter. So it's the... It's just Not the, a pair I ever envisioned. No. Ray Romano and Holly Hunter. I'm with you. But yeah. it's, it's one of those films. It's the rare movie that I can recommend to almost anyone or everyone and be confident that they'll not only like it, that they'll love it. Yeah, I've got to see The Big Sick. I, that's one of the shows that I missed and you did an inter- the interview I want to listen to too, but I'll have to wait till after I see the film. I regret for me. I want yeah. to catch up with it before. Out now in theaters. Five. Yeah, and I think it did just recently, I think, get an expanded wide release. So if you're in a fairly big city, you might be able to check it out. All right, number one is where I do have Get Out. It's where the Film Spotting listeners voted it. I agree. And you might say, you know, as, as Adam described it, you might say, okay, well, this is the politically correct choice, right? This is this is the one you got to make to look like you're with it or whatever. But if you've seen the movie, and, and you described it this way too, you know that this is, first and foremost, it's sharply funny. Um, it's terrifying. Like, it, it works as a horror movie. It it's the least messagey message movie I can imagine, even though it gives you so much to think about that. This is that stuff. You'd almost don't have time while you're watching the film. It's, it kind of hits you afterwards. You're like, Oh, okay. I see what's going on. Even as it's right there on the surface, even in the plot description. So 
really incredible accomplishment from Jordan Peele. A huge surprise. I, I didn't even know this was coming out before it did. So it's one of the great stories of the year for me and certainly wouldn't have expected him to do big key and Peele fan, but wouldn't have expected him to do something this accomplished as a debut. So it's really exciting. And I think the one element that I'll, I'll talk about here, which I think we did touch on a bit when we reviewed it, but it has to do with the beguiled as well. And, and this notion that slavery was almost forgotten or briefly referenced and more in the background, Angelica made a great defense of how it's really in the background of this film. If you look at it that way, it's all over Get Out, which is a contemporary set film. And for me, it was all over in how bold Get Out is in pushing the gore element, the horror element, um, which, again, is another one of the movie surprises. You keep saying, well, it's not going to keep going further than this, and it does. But I think there's a tie there because one of the things, just one of the things the movie is considering, and there's a prologue that deeply ties into this, is the contemporary violence that black bodies are being subjected to contemporary daily violence today. And by emphasizing the gore as this movie gets crazier and crazier, you get the sense that this is rooted in a deep historical reality. So what get out manages to pull out is it becomes a piece of historical body horror. I don't know if I've ever seen anything like that and makes it exceedingly relevant as well. So just rubs that reality in our face which is why it's also thrilling to see it be such a hit, you know, because usually movies like this that are so unsettling and provoking, um, people don't embrace. So there's something weird going on with this film from the box office to the fact that it was even made to the fact that they pulled it off. That makes it the exciting movie story of 2017 and right now my favorite film. So we'll see. It's another one I want to watch again uh, before the end of the year and, and definitely we'll do that and see where things sort out. But that's where it sits right now. It did come out earlier in the year, so it's been out on DVD and yeah. on streaming platforms for a while. If you haven't caught up with Get Out yet, obviously we recommend you do. Okay, my number one, I started with a ghost story. I might as well bookend my list. This is another one. It's Personal Shopper. It's the latest film from Olivier Asayas, and it stars Kristen Stewart. Here, unlike a ghost story, instead of us being with the bereaved party in the relationship, they're oblivious to the spirit's presence and we're experiencing everything from that spirit's point of view here we follow the bereaved party in her quest to connect with the spiritual world and that character is Kristen Stewart's Maureen her job I didn't know this existed but I suppose it makes sense that it does she's a personal shopper she works for a celebrity and I think she spends most of her time in the film in Paris that's what she does she goes around to all these tremendously high-class shops and people bring stuff to her and she tries on clothes for this celebrity and has a few encounters with her throughout. So there's always a sense watching the film that she's not quite her own person. And we see some of those scenes where she's trying on the woman's clothes, trying to get a sense of what it's like in her body. And then we add the spiritual element onto the movie, which is she had a twin brother named Lewis who recently died from a heart attack. And they both have this larger interest in the spiritual world. They both believed and believe that they can connect to the spiritual world. So she's constantly searching for that connection with him as if he's somehow still there. She spends uh, the best scene in the film probably is that one early on where she goes to the house Mm -hmm. where he used to live and, and has kind of a terrifying encounter inside that space while she's, she is trying to make that, that connection. So I wanted to read actually, uh, 
a quick email from a listener or a fairly quick email from a listener because it's, it's a bit of listener feedback that we don't usually get to the show. We usually get a lot of people who write in, of course, and tell us about their intellectual reaction to the film, how they agree with us or disagree with us, and they don't necessarily tell stories, but the story seems so appropriate to this film, Personal Shopper. It's from Josh in Memphis. He says, I want to preface this by saying that I don't necessarily believe in ghosts, spirits, paranormal activity, or any other metaphysical bamboozling, but I absolutely believe that there are things which mere humans cannot understand, and this world is leagues more bizarre than most people will ever give it credit for. So here's what happened. I made a last-minute decision to go see Personal Shopper at my local mall cinema on a stormy night, 20 minutes before the 9.40 showing I was aiming for. It was a straight shot from my house to the theater, and as I braved the unusually aggressive rain, I passed three different car accidents. The frantic blue lights of Memphis PD dancing in the puddles gathered in the unkempt streets. The woeful sound of Chet Baker's horn fought with my radio static as I pulled into the empty parking lot of the mall. At this hour... The mall was all but boarded up and hollow. The only lights came from the theater and adjacent carousel. The door was unlocked, but I found nobody to sell me a ticket, and in fact, seemingly no signs of life at all. After waiting a while, I left $10 on the counter and went to see my movie. My screening room was empty, too. I had it all to myself. You have already seen the film, so I won't bore you with the plot. The most interesting part of it to me was that my quest to see this film seemed to mirror Stewart's quest to receive some kind of message from the beyond. Just as Marine's encounters with these things, with these beings, were entirely solipsistic, so was my own experience in going to see the movie. I never saw another soul, almost as if it was screened just for me. I may as well have been a ghost myself, quietly observing the ghosts of the film. They're just tricks of the light, but who am I to say that an illusion is any less real than our lives? After all, I saw it happen. And there will always be something out there, or maybe in here, something we cannot understand. Nice. Something about reading him after I read this email shortly after seeing the film myself, and and it does have that sort of haunting effect on you watching it. And I got the same chills that I got watching the movie from reading about his encounter, going to the movie all alone. Nobody there even to take his ticket as if somehow this screening was just, it was just provided by the cosmos. It was, it was fate somehow that he was supposed to walk into that theater. And I think that it's the kind of film and he described it there where it, it makes you, in a very heightened way, aware of the world around you and your place in that world. And I don't think many of us experience it in our daily lives. We can be so myopically focused on what we're trying to achieve, what we need, what we want. And this film is constantly sort of teasing at this sense of, of so much more going on. I think this is a perfect bookend to where we started, Josh, with your reading from Movies Are Prayers in some ways without necessarily getting certainly at Christianity or, or talking about God. There's something, there's, there's a lot of yearning and there's a lot of longing that occurs in Personal Shopper. And it's the film, it's number one for me at this point because it's the movie I'm most excited to see again. Yeah, and it is a bookend that works well with a ghost story, too, because in the email, the phrase stormy night, like these are cliches these movies are dealing in, right? But you you picked the scene in Personal Shopper that should be the most obvious and familiar to us, and it's the most affecting, walking through a spooky house at night. Uh, Asayas manages to make that fresh and live for us again, just as Lowry makes something as ridiculous as you know, the, the Charlie Brown Halloween costume ghost thing work. It works for some reason. And uh, yeah, it's always just uh, exciting to see a filmmaker able to pull that off. Personal Shopper is out 
on iTunes, Amazon, I think maybe some other streaming platforms. I don't think it has hit DVD yet, though. So those are our top five films of the year so far. I did want to throw it out to the crowd, even though we don't have any microphones. Feel free to shout it out. Is there a film that we haven't mentioned that you love that you would put up there as your number one? Lost City of Z. Honorable oh, yeah. mention for me. Yeah, yeah, as well. Maybe number like seven or eight for this That's year. That's where I so, have it. Yeah. Great one. James Gray. Baby driver. <laughs> we'll fight about Adam, it afterwards. Yes. Ask Adam more about that afterwards. <laughs> I love the first 20 minutes. Love it. How okay, Phil. It's pretty yeah. good. Adam feels a little more strongly. So what about some other titles from you that you yeah, consider? So Lost City of Z is on there. And also, I was just able to catch it before we headed here to Spring Green, but War for the Planet of the Apes. I'm still trying to place that one. We're both huge fans of the last film. And I think you liked the first one as well, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think we reviewed that together. But um, I think there's been a really strong trilogy. I think it ends quite strong still deciding how strong but it's it was in the running for me and then my regrets uh you hit the two okja and the big sick were on my list of what i really had hoped to see before making this list but they made yours so there you go i'm glad for that yeah one of my big surprises and i know we split on this one a little bit but i definitely did consider for my top five t2 train spotting danny boyle's very self-aware sequel to the original train spotting and if you are a fan of that film or danny boyle's work i would encourage anyone to check out my interview with him my conversation where not only do we talk about t2 but it was a lot of fun to get him to actually share his top five danny boyle characters really great insights from him on that that movie is out on dvd and streaming the lost city of z as we mentioned the james gray period adventure about british explorer percy fawcett that's on dvd and streaming one that's still in theaters that i know you haven't caught up with yet it comes at night the latest yes. from edward schultz was definitely in the mix for me and i know we were big fans of the lego batman movie that's true. That was this year, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Not that long ago. That's DVD available and streaming. And then I almost cheated, Josh. I tried to come up with that clever spin on my list and maybe make this a tie at number five, but I didn't want you to just beat me down in front of the whole crowd for cheating. So I'll just throw it in here in honorable mentions. But anyone out there with Netflix subscriptions or who is following kind of what's going on with them at all, you know that they've really decided to just embrace the world of comedy and having these just this constant influx of great comedy specials great comedians Mm. doing specials and i haven't actually finished the two dave chappelle ones yet but louis ck 2017 is great mike birbiglia's thank god for jokes is great and my favorite of the bunch hassan minaj homecoming king on netflix is really wonderful and this isn't netflix it's hbo but chris gethard career suicide also another really good one so that that batch of netflix hbo comedies highly recommended yeah that opens that whole can of worms like when we make our top 10 Mm -hmm. not that this matters to anyone but us but you know are are netflix specials eligible i don't know i like it because it makes it look like i've seen more movies (laughs) that's true so (laughs) that's one advantage yeah so my regrets the beguiled covered war for the planet of the apes covered raw covered the other two that stand out i really do want to see colossal yes the the bizarre supposedly science fiction Drama, if you will, but also comedy. Yeah, monster movie with Anne Hathaway Mm -hmm. and Jason Sudeikis. That comes out on DVD August 1st. And then Your Name. We read some great feedback from listeners talking about that anime anime from Japan. It comes out here in 10 days on DVD July 26th. That 
I think the mo- is it the most popular film in Japanese box office history or something like that. It's this this monstrous hit, and it did get a release here in the states, and a lot of our listeners love it, and we weren't able to catch up with it. Yeah, I'll be so. seeing that for sure before the end of the year. I think There's we did our it. List. I think I hope I was recording, Sam. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to. Oh, she. It, it says we were, so I think we're good. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you very much. Our thanks again to everyone at Arcadia Books in Spring Green, Wisconsin, for hosting us and everyone who came out to see the show. If you've got a favorite film of 2017 that we didn't mention, let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net. While in Spring Green, in the shadow of the pros at American Players Theater, we were just too intimidated to do Massacre Theater. (laughs) Indeed. So we'll get to that next, safely here in the studio. Plus, I'll share some quick thoughts on War for the Planet of the Apes, and then we'll get to our Dunkirk review. Stay with us. question, the first question is always, are these cannibals? No, they are not cannibals. Cannibalism in the true sense of the word implies an interspecies activity. These creatures cannot be considered human. They prey on humans. They do not prey on each other. That's the difference. They attack and they feed only on warmed flesh. Who better to establish the rules of zombie eating habits and the zombie genre in general? Then George Romero, who sadly passed away this past Sunday at the age of 77. You heard Richard France as Dr. Millard Rausch in that clip from Romero's 1978 film, Dawn of the Dead. Of course, it all started in 1968 with Night of the Living Dead, made independently for $100,000, went on to gross $12 million. And in 1999, Night of the Living Dead was actually selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. Might seem odd for a low-budget horror movie, but I think that speaks largely to its influence on films moving on. But really, the quality of the film itself, if you go back and look at that, oh man, it, it is spectacular of all of his zombie films, for me, by far the best. I think I've seen all but one. He did go on to direct the Dead sequels, Dawn of the Dead from 78, then Day of the Dead, 85. Land of the Dead came out in 05, and then his last two features were also zombie slash dead movies, 2007's Diary of the Dead and 2009's Survival of the Dead. That wasn't all that Romero directed, though he also made The Crazies in 73 and Creepshow in 1982. Yeah, Creepshow creep me out as a kid. I love that. I'm not sure actually which one of those segments, because I think there are a bunch of different directed pieces that are part of Creepshow. There's like independent stories. Maybe he was the overall director with the vision there, but I'm not an expert 
on Romero, certainly, as we've discussed here on the show, horror never was my big genre, mostly because those movies scared me. I saw Night of the Living Dead in college, actually still need really to see it again. And that ignorance of the horror genre is why one of the first marathons we did, I don't remember what number it was, but it was November 2005. So we were seven months into the show, basically, seven, eight months into the show, well before your time, Sam and I decided to do a horror movie marathon and Dawn of the Dead was part of that lineup. I actually asked Sam, and we haven't finished really discussing it, so I can't guarantee that it won't sneak into your feed, but Basically, I think the attraction, if there is any, of listening to that might be that you're listening to two guys discover Romero. Even though we had seen Night of the Living Dead, I think Sam had Dawn of the Dead really wrestling with that film and really reacting positively to that film. That was us recognizing that there was something a lot deeper at play here than just someone trying to scare you, which is noble enough as a pursuit, but there was something more going on there, and we'll see. I don't know that I can ever bring myself, like I said, to listen to it, but it might be worth it. And actually, Land of the Dead was reviewed here on the show. I can't remember if that was Sam or Maddie, but I remember seeing that in the theater and talking about it. Didn't react as favorably as I did the other films, but I think overall I was positive on it. The same night, Sunday night, we also lost Martin Landau. He was 89 years old, Oscar winner for Ed Wood in 1995, playing an aging Bella Lugosi. He's so good in that role. He was also nominated in 89 for Tucker, A Man in His Dream, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, and my favorite Martin Landau performance because it's one of my all-time favorite films, 1990, Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors. He is, of course, memorable in so many roles, though, Hitchcock's North by Northwest, and he was known on TV for Mission Impossible. Yeah, I think that Ed Wood win is one of those honorary Oscars that was also deserving. You know, a lot of times later in an actor's career, they'll get that for something that maybe wasn't their best work, but Ed Wood absolutely was among Landau's best work. It's funny, we just watched North by Northwest at home with the family, and you never know when you revisit a classic that kids are seeing for the first time what's going to jump out at them. Mm -hmm. Landau made an impression. Like the minute that office scene where Cary Grant meets these mysterious characters, Mm -hmm. the kids kind of like locked in on him and said, what's with that guy? He just had that presence. He looks a little odd. He's towering. For whatever reason, B called him Snivels, the snake vampire. (laughs) I I don't know what that means, but it kind of captures the presence he has in North by Northwest. And then, you know, certainly in other roles, but especially in Ed Wood, there's, there's a mournfulness and a, um, a soulfulness that he brings to that odd face that I think is why it is maybe his best performance. On a lighter note, we have some movie passes to give away for our Chicago listeners, including to the movie that you just heard make our top five list. My number five and A Ghost Story was your number four. My number four, right? yeah. And the movie, of course, we talked about last week on the show. If we did recommend it strongly enough that you want to see the movie, you might just get to do that for free. During its Chicago run, you can use your free passes. You can enter to win those at filmspotting.net slash events. And we have more movie passes to give away. Josh, we're both dying to see Catherine Bigelow's Detroit. It opens on August 4th and on July 27th. We've got an advanced screening that's taking place, passes for that. We also have advanced screening passes for The Glass Castle, which opens August 11th, and that screens August 8th. It stars Brie Larson, and it's based on Jeanette Wall's 2005 memoir, which spent more than 260 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Movies or prayers? How many weeks has it been on the list, Josh? Uh, we, we are hoping to crack it next week. Okay. 
We'll see what kind of streak we can get going there. More info on these and other offers and events at that events page. Again, filmspotting.net slash events. Filmspotting.net is where you can also participate in our bi-weekly poll questions. The last one we pose to you, it's our beautiful people we've come to respect deathmatch, Keanu versus Charlize Theron. So Atomic Blonde is opening next week with Charlize. It's directed by one half of the directing team that directed Keanu in John Wick, David Leach. So you can see the mastermind of Sam here putting yes. these two together. From what I understand, the results that have been rolling in are something of a surprise. Well, maybe they're a surprise. You haven't looked at the results, so I'll ask you, how did you expect it to go? I expected that Keanu Reeves would win mainly because I went the other way. Fair enough. Usually a good <laughs> approach, a sound approach, Josh. In this case, you did vote Charlize. I went Keanu. Sam also, he went Keanu, but more importantly to this particular discussion, we predicted that Keanu would come out on top, and he's actually kind of getting trounced. Really? So at minimum, you can try to you try to minimize the damage here and make it less of a crushing defeat. If you want to vote for Keanu, there's still time. We still have another week left to vote. Filmspotting.net. I haven't voted myself yet, so okay. one more for Charlize. One more for Charlize. You are forbidden to vote, Josh. She has enough votes. Okay, a look ahead to next week on the show. We are not going to talk about Atomic Blonde, which we thought we might. Instead, we're going to go with Luke Besson's Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. It's the review you basically demanded by this is right. voting for it in an earlier poll question this summer, a movie that we were probably underestimating, thought, it looked kind of terrible, and you said, no, maybe it's not going to be terrible. We think you should see it. Valerian won pretty handily among a lot of other options, and that's what we're going with. So listener's choice, which means if it's terrible, it's their fault. We can blame them. That is it. that is what's driving this, Josh. And we are going to tie in a top five sci-fi vision. So we had some discussion about this in our Slack today, and I was only kind of paying attention, which is normal for me. So where did we end up on this? My understanding is that we're leaning towards non-Earth worlds slash locations and specifically – I don't know if you hate this term, world building. I'm already this asleep. Is why, this is why you weren't paying attention. <laughs> no, just the criteria just imagine, is long, the criteria is, is longer than your list. Just imagine that this is in the format of a film spotting madness tourney, uh-huh. and suddenly okay. you'll snap, now I'm in. You'll snap okay. to attention. Okay, so we're destroying these movies. Fire, <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay, that works. No, but I think world building is what we want to go after here. Is so we're not just talking about places we'd like to visit. That's similar to something we've done before. We're not just talking about the movies themselves, but the spaces, the vision that was created, the world building that was done. I can see that this is probably going to change shortly after we're done recording. No, I based don't know. On your enthusiasm. I mean, only if I can change it so none of the Star Wars prequels come up on your list. Um, they probably wouldn't. Okay. Yeah. The, see, one of now we're going to go off on a tangent, but I do have quibbles with the amount of CGI world building that does go on there. I think mm. there's some. Excellent world building as well, but some of the CGI stuff is a little much. Uh, maybe I could squeeze Avatar on there, which I know would please you just as much. I mean, that's that's like an amazing created world. Okay. You've got to admit that. You you may not like the story. You may not like the lead. 
I don't know what your problem for is film spotting historians. About. I want to point out that we've been doing the show for over twelve years, six hundred plus episodes. I've never done the snoring sound effect ever, and you just got it twice <laughs> it was in sixty seconds. Science fiction, world building, and Avatar. <laughs> yep. Well. If I say it a few more times, maybe you'll nod off and I'll have the rest of the show to myself. I might. And hey, I like sci-fi. I'm excited. Uh, I'm yes. excited yeah, about this list, Josh. I can no. hear it in your voice. I just need to simplify it somehow, which is the opposite of what I normally do with top fives. If you have a favorite sci-fi vision, a planet, a city, a world, a location, See, whatever you, you want to call it, leave us a voicemail. We may use it in next week's show. You can call the voicemail line 312-264-0744 or even better, usually better quality, send us an MP3 file, feedback at filmspotting.net. Okay, it's time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, Josh and guest host Angelica Jade Bastien massacred this scene from this great movie. Hey, hey, wake up, you. The troops coming. Come on, Graham. Like us. Let's say hello to them and then get going. Hurrah! Hurrah for the Confederacy! Hurrah! Down with General Grant! Hurrah for General... What's your name? Lee. Lee! 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 Ah! Hey! God is with us because he hates the Apes too! Hurrah! God's not on our side because he hates idiots also. Clint Eastwood there as Blondie alongside Eli Wallach's Tuco in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly from 1966. The screenplay, are you ready for this? I can't wait. Agnore Incroci, Furio Scarpelli, Luciano Vincenzoni, and Sergio Leone. And the English version, of course, by Mickey Knox, directed by Leone. Of course it was. We massacred that scene in the show that included our review of Sofia Coppola's The Beguiled, and we did our top five Sofia Coppola scenes. So the connections there, a few right here on the surface. The Beguiled, an adaptation of the 1966 novel A Painted Devil by Thomas P. Cullinan. That was also adapted for the 1971 film, also called The Beguiled. That was directed by Don Siegel and starred The Good, The Bad, and The Uglies, Clint Eastwood. Our listeners, as they are usually want to do, helped us out with some more connections. Longtime listener Trevor Aikman in Saskatchewan, he claims to have been listening since episode four of the show, writes, Josh and Angelica masterfully shot up a scene from Leone's The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, starring the original lead of The Beguiled as Blondie and Sofia Coppola's Godfather Part Three co-star Eli Wallach as the bandit Tuco. I did not realize no, that. No, me neither. There is even a Civil War tie-in here as, in this scene, Blondie and Tuco are impersonating Confederate soldiers and happen upon a dust-obscured Union patrol and are taken prisoner. Yet another beguiled tie-in, perhaps? You're right, Trevor. That is what we were thinking. James Cobden notes that Rico calls Clint Blondie, and there are lots of blondes in the beguiled. There are. This is true as well. Rob Caravaggio in Chicago points out that both films are period pieces directed by Italian-slash-Italian-American directors. And he writes that in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Eastwood and Wallach poses Civil War soldiers who become interlopers in an unlikely place. So not unlike Colin Farrell's Union soldier in The Beguiled. Finally, Michael Bainline in Omaha, Nebraska says both great performances, but I really enjoyed your energy, Josh, as Tuco from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Angelica was, of course, Clint Eastwood's blondie, but I believe she was channeling someone from... True Detective? <laughs> McConaughey's Detective Cole, maybe. But that's not actually that's not actually the most common guess for who Angelica might have been channeling, though we did get multiple Russ Coles. 
we heard more often, be Arthur. So people did figure it out. Was that what she was going for? She was going for B. Arthur. I Why? I didn't get it. When she first made I mean, who the, can even do a B. Arthur? Uh, well, apparently Angelica. She's, she's a Golden Girls aficionado. What can I say? I guess so. All right. Well, reach in to the film spotting hat, Josh, and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Pete Craig from Alexandria, Virginia. Congratulations, Pete. He is from Film Spotting East, maybe the future site of a film spotting live show. And that's more likely than the thousands of other times we've ever said that in the past. <laughs> that's true. Actually, we, we've got some, some wheels in motion, yes. but it's a little ways off. We'll have a lot more details about that. And Pete, to claim your prize, all you have to do is email feedback at filmspotting.net. That was the greatest acting I have ever seen. I just don't know how you do it, Gary. How do you make yourself so somber and emotional to make everybody cry like that? It's not that hard, really. I just think about the saddest moment in my life. We move on to Massacre Theater Accent Edition. We just had it chuckle off <laughs> to determine yes. who's going to get which part here. Mm-hmm. I contend you won, but you want me to chuckle, so I'm going to chuckle. Yes, my winning means you have to take okay. the part. All right. I'm going to do the easier part. For the record, you're, you have the better chuckle. Well, possibly, but I think you're the Falstaff here. Among mm-hmm. us yes. performers, Josh. So I'm going to let you have the bigger role. Are you ready? You started off. Okay. And action. Was I going to Ted fast, officer? Yes, you were, Mr. Blower. Well, now you see we are staging a homage to William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet tonight. And I'm a little late for the dress rehearsal. I'm playing the eponymous hero, you see. Romeo, not Juliet. <laughs> what are you writing? Everything you're saying. I might need to refer to it later. Now, officer, I'm a respected solicitor, so there's no need to just stop writing. Look, I'm merely trying to explain why I might have exceeded the speed limit. You're playing the male lead in an homage to William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, and you're late for the dress rehearsal. You think this is sufficient reason to travel at 48 in a 30 zone? Well, I... To flout speed limits specifically put in place to save lives... Look, this is preposterous! Preposterous? Stop writing! Stop writing. Look, you're right. I apologize. And And scene. (laughs) Like Costner, I pretty much abandoned the English accent. You abandoned it about three quarters of the way through. Yeah. I think I was going back to Leone and (laughs) Luciano. A few syllables in Italian never heard any scene. (laughs) All right. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, July 31st. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. And is the rumor mill true? There are no longer any rules governing Massacre Theater? It's anarchy. I've looked at Basically, Massacre Theater is nom now. But, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, find them on the I, new build, I build the whole website from scratch. What role did you play in that, Josh? And now here you are on air criticizing me for not getting the rules up. Priorities. Years from now, your children will ask you, what did you do in the greatest war? And you can tell them, I fought to protect this world. We created this. But now, we will bring an end to their kind. Well, as you heard at the end of the top five list from Spring Green, you 
have caught up with War for the Planet of the Apes. I have not been able to yet, but I am looking forward to see it. We'll see if you make me even more excited to see it. And about a week ago, my wife and I were flipping channels late at night, and we came across Stephen Colbert, and he had Andy Serkis on. And they actually showed a clip because they got into this discussion a little bit about how much of the performance is really the actor in this whole motion capture scheme. And I think we've talked about this a little bit over the years, like the last time we reviewed one of the Apes films. But I certainly, from a technical standpoint, have never really understood everything that goes into it and have not really been able to form a strong opinion. But they showed a clip that's a scene that didn't make the movie. And I'm sure it's online. And if I can find it, we'll put it in our show notes at filmspotting.net. But it's Andy Serkis. It starts on him doing a line reading as Caesar, the ape from War for the Planet of the Apes. And slowly as the scene goes on, the motion capture is overlaid over the top of him so that by the end of the scene, he is Caesar. But Mm -hmm. what it proves, of course, is that there's really an actor there really saying these lines, really emoting, giving it everything that we ultimately see. It's sort of this layer of skin, if you will, and the fur that's put over the top of him. It seemed pretty definitive for me anyway as evidence that would help elevate this as truly performance and make the case for Andy Serkis. And that can be a good jumping off point, I think, for your take on the film, Josh, because we also recently got an email from listener Nick Colucci in Buffalo, New York. He says, I just walked out of war for the Planet of the Apes. And while I'm mostly underwhelmed with the film as a whole, I did appreciate what Andy Serkis did with his motion capture performance as Caesar. I admit I'm not an expert on motion capture or even an amateur, but from what I understand, it's mostly Serkis's performance. With that being said, I believe his acting in the opening scene of Apes is the most powerful I've seen this year so far. There's still another half year of performances till the next Oscar ceremony, but Circus in Apes is in my top spot so far in the best actor category. I'm not sure if this has been discussed yet on the show, but I would enjoy listening to Adam and Josh's take on mocap performances being represented at the Oscars. Yeah, I was on board with Circus being an Oscar nominee back with Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and I think we were both huge fans, and I had him on my list for Best Supporting Actors, mm-hmm. Toby Kebbell, when we reviewed Dawn of the Planet that's right. Apes playing Koba, Caesar's adversary in that essentially Shakespearean installment in this fantastic sci-fi franchise. I mean, this is three films now, I can say, that really distinguish themselves in terms of science fiction that could be schlocky but instead is Shakespearean and also have the effects to carry that through. I think this is a tricky thing because it is absolutely circus. And I saw a similar video, I think the New York Times did it, where it was fascinating. He talked about how he wore weights to make sure that his movement was heavy in ways that he believed this character would be. But I don't want to completely set aside what the computer animation artists are Mm -hmm. doing as well, because the details in the fur, I don't know. Do apes have fur? Do you call it fur? You know I what think I mean. You do. You know that. And, and I the called eyes, it fur too. So. Okay, good. There, there's, there's a reference in the script here of one character commenting on Caesar's eyes, and I think that is crucial as well. All of the performance and the animation come together to create something where. I've said this for three films now. An ape jumps on a horse, and you don't pause for a minute to. Th- to second guess it, at least I don't, Mm -hmm. to laugh at it, to even consider whether or not this is something that's ridiculous or even believable. You're just there. You're in the moment. Matt Reeves, the director here, returning from Dawn, does that in this fantastic opening battle sequence we get where it's a very interesting approach. There's all sorts of chaos 
amongst the fighting. It's an attack on an ape compound in the forest of these soldiers, kind of a last remaining band of soldiers who are looking to take out Caesar and the apes he has gathered, the community he's formed. And we see this from an overhead shot that slowly moves above all of the fighting. There's very few edits in a lot of the action scenes in this movie. It's sober, it's contemplative, and that matches the seriousness of the tone of this endeavor. These are movies to take seriously, and they don't push that so far where they become laughable. Um, Michael Giacchino's score, I know a lot of people have talked about, and there are these slices of strings that are very tense. There's this rumbling going on in the background that adds to the somber attitude. Overall, I think this is a fitting conclusion to what has been one of the motion capture performance or not most fascinating movie character arcs for me over three films now, where it takes Caesar and this question he faces in this film, which is really, should he continue to try to live in increasingly antagonistic relationship with a few humans who are left, or should he actively work towards their subjugation? Mm-hmm. And we sense that con- that's an inner conflict that we sense in this ape character, this chimpanzee character, and that I still find to be miraculous. Now, There was some hesitation. I think I sounded a little bit hesitant when I listed it as an honorable mention for our top five list for the best of the year so far. And I worked that out a little bit in the, what, 24, 36 hours since we left Spring Green. The movie makes an odd narrative detour where it becomes a prison film for most of its running time. After this battle opening, it takes place in the north where a colonel played by Woody Harrelson has essentially erected an ape concentration camp. And I found that in the immediate experience to be a little diverting. All this momentum towards an epic conclusion that I felt was being built had been put on pause. I'm not sure the Woody Harrelson character quite works. I think if it had worked a little better, I would have been more on board. But it does. It has to because it's Woody Harrelson. So you're right. Like if anyone can pull off this sort of scary, crazy role, it Mm -hmm. would be him. But the movie puts too much on his shoulders. It wants a lot of the thematic touches to come through here. A lot of plot exposition has to come through with this character. And there's a very long, unfortunate dialogue scene between him and Caesar where all of this is kind of dumped at Mm -hmm. once. The movie recovers from that and does give us a very momentous finale that I won't give away except to say there's the brilliant touch of giving brute nature the final say in how this battle scene plays out. I love that. And there is this elegiac touch to the film that completes that character arc in a beautiful way. So, you know, maybe my least favorite of the three sitting here right now, but still extremely strong and satisfying conclusion. So for me, what's going to prove most interesting as a little bit of a test here for our audience, you talked for about three to four minutes after the point where we both referenced apes as having fur. And I wonder how many of our listeners actually in that time got off an email telling us that, of course, apes are mammals, so they have hair, Josh, like we do, not fur. I'm going to put the over-under at 48 emails. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to go under with that, but I wouldn't well, put it past them. I get a lot of these directly, just to me. <laughs> okay. War for the Planet of the Apes is currently out in wide release. If you've seen it and agree or disagree with Josh's take, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. All right, so have we saved the best for last? Next up, we review one of the most anticipated films of 2017, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Stay with us. 
We have to go to Dunkirk. Ready on the stern line. What are you doing? You know where we're going. Into war, George. I'll be useful, sir. One of ours. That was a clip from the trailer for Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. It opens this weekend in wide release and hopefully... Tasha, our good friend Tasha Robinson, the great critic who comes on the show periodically as a guest and is one of the hosts of the Next Picture Show podcast. She won't mind me betraying a little conversation we had because we were seated next to each other at the screening that we just walked out of. So I'm I'm really bemoaning. I've already bemoaned out loud to you, Josh, how I wish we had two or three days to prepare for this review because I'm sure I could come up with something a little bit more interesting to say. I'm going to give it my best, but we are certainly still processing this movie. And as we were waiting for it to start, we were talking about Nolan a little bit, and Tasha said that you know she wasn't really anticipating this film. She wasn't one of the people that was really excited about it. She seems to be someone who generally likes Nolan's work, but it's a war movie. And She doesn't necessarily get excited about every new war movie that comes out. It's a genre that is certainly well-worn at this point. He makes these unique films, certainly a movie like Memento. You can't really compare it to anything else other than to, I suppose, put it within this larger genre of a hard-boiled kind of neo-noir. There are elements, certainly, of a lot of familiar genres in a movie like Interstellar, but Nolan still tends to bring something personal, it would seem, and unique to the table. She wondered, I wondered if he would do that here with a war movie that, I suppose on the surface, we knew one thing that stood out about it. It's ultimately the tale of an evacuation. The British and the French armies pinned down, surrounded. They've been pushed back to the beaches there in Dunkirk. They can almost see home. They can almost see England. They're that close, but they're facing almost certain death. And this is the tale of how most of the men on that beach did survive. Josh, do you feel like you got something different out of the war picture here? I got an absolutely different experience mm-hmm. out of this as a war picture. Um, I'll, I'll get to that. What I mean by that, first off, I'm going to say that I'm probably going to overrate Dunkirk for a couple of reasons. The first is what you mentioned. We just saw it. Mm -hmm. So I'm on a bit of a high from coming out of the theater. Um, Secondly is that in many ways, this is a direct answer, it feels like, to some of my issues with Interstellar, a movie that I was mixed on. I mean, you know, we split on it on the show, so people seem to think that I didn't actively like it. Because I really loved it. You were a much bigger fan. And the thing that held me back was what I felt was extraneous. (laughs) 
explication. Well, there's no there's a no lot explanations of, here. There's that, no dialogue. That's what I mean. Like it's almost like the far extreme end. Yes. Whether you liked it or not, the fact is Interstellar had a lot of dialogue scenes explaining what was going on and some of the science and and that sort of stuff. And that tripped me up more than than a lot of viewers. Yeah, here we don't even need the titles at the beginning which explain this evacuation a little bit and say what they were up against because we see a pamphlet in the first scene fall down from the sky on these fleeing British soldiers, enemy propaganda that just says you are surrounded Mm -hmm. and a little map there. That's all we need and really that is about all we get. There is so little dialogue here. You're just experiencing what this might have been like from a variety of vantage points and as we mentioned at the top, it's brief. It's under two hours. Basically, for me, I didn't have to do any processing, just experiencing. Yes. Now, that doesn't mean that I can't do processing later and start to think about some of the themes that may arise. But I find sometimes in Nolan films, we're being asked to process as we're watching it. For sure. And there can be a a bit of a remove then in, Mm -hmm. in my experience of the movie here. I was just in the midst of it. Yeah. Now, to go back to why I may be overrating it. Um. I found this hugely emotionally moving. And what's strange to me is because I'm more like Tasha. I've seen so many war pictures. Um, I don't really have a personal connection to warfare. So for me, it has started to feel perhaps like a war genre. And I think about some of the great war films that I've admired, and it's often been for reasons other than even Saving Private Ryan, the emotional effect it had on me. And this, by the time there is a shot, I won't give you the context because I want listeners to have the same experience, but the the shot that got me was near the end of Tom Hardy's yep, plane. that's it gliding uh-huh. across the beach. Now, yep. it, I can't explain to you why. It it maybe is because it's the defining image of something that had been building. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I th- okay, here's what it is. It didn't ask for my emotions at that point. And as powerful as something as like Saving Private Ryan can be, that conclusion, the epilogue, certainly is asking for your emotions. And that may be an honorable intent. I'm just wired where... Don't get too pushy and ask me how I'm feeling, right? (laughs) I respond emotionally to movies when they sneak up on me and gut punch me. That's what Dunkirk did. It certainly does. And and I'll add, you know, there's probably personal reasons going into this too. My grandfather, World War II veteran, there are not many of them around anymore. So I'm starting to think about this. Even talking with him about World War II is getting more and more difficult because of his age. So it's maybe where I'm at right now to watch a World War II picture that is completely separate from what's going hmm. on on the screen. That may be a factor as well. But really, I, I you know, as a it's a nuts and bolts exercise that somehow still manages to find nobility in military failure. And I think that also distinguishes it mm-hmm. from many of the war films we've seen. Puts it in this middle ground of the ones that are anti-war war films and the ones that are feel-good war films where we maybe cover history and victory. And maybe this finds a middle space of, again, honoring nobility while recognizing it, do- it doesn't necessarily have to always come in victory. Well, what more is there to say? Josh, I mean, well done. I, I'm with you. I'm, so you I'm with you it. in I lockstep, you liked it. Okay, including good. down to that image being the one that really yeah. took my breath away. Yeah. And there are other moments that had a similar effect, but that scene was really the defining 
image of the film, I think. And you talk about just the experience of watching the movie. I regret just a little bit that our screening wasn't in 70 millimeter. It oh, wasn't can you imagine? in IMAX either. And I can't imagine it only because the first take on this film I heard, and we did not get into details, but our friend of the show, Mikado Murphy from the New York Times, I was in New York about three weeks ago and we were having lunch and he had seen Dunkirk like the day before and he described it as just seeing it in maybe the best IMAX venue in Manhattan you could possibly see it in. And I don't know that I've ever seen anyone be that effusive in their praise of a movie. It was as if he was reliving the experience of seeing it. He talked about just the screen feeling like it was engulfing the audience. and. So, yeah, you get a taste. We of that get a here. taste of it here, yeah. even though we weren't seeing it in 70 and we weren't seeing it in IMAX. The experience of it, I think, is probably similar. And it does make sense because this environment with the way it's shot by Nolan and the great cinematographer Hoyt Van Hoytema, they show you how they constantly feel engulfed by the space around them, the beach and everything about the water, but also the enemy, which we never see in this movie. We never actually see yeah. a German soldier, yeah. which just adds to that overall effect of them not only being surrounded, but it's as if they are at all times besieged. They're out there. You never know when exactly they're going to strike, but they're out there. And this movie couldn't be more different than the movie we talked about earlier in the show in our top five, the movie we talked about in detail last week, A Ghost Story. And yet, I feel like they were similar experiences for me in some ways. This was this was even more weight I felt on me throughout the whole film because it is a sensory experience. And both films are. They are ultimately both films about life and death. And then they are both films that deal very directly with time and the filmmakers play with the notion of time. And I was so caught up in the movie that even though Nolan actually spells out the structure of the film, literally spells out on screen in text mm-hmm. what he's going to do with this film, we get introduced to this character played by Fian Whitehead. He's Tommy. He's a private in the British Army. It says the mole, the mole being a reference to kind of the pier that all the men are stuck on and hiding and trying to stay safe on at Dunkirk. It says one week. And then we're at sea, and we're at sea with Mark Rylance and his son and another character who comes aboard, and they're part of this evacuation mission. All these British boats, non-military yeah, boats, civilian boats, rushing to Dunkirk to try to evacuate anyone they can. That's one day. And then we get even more minute, the air, Tom Hardy and another pilot who are going to provide some kind of air support, and that's just one hour. So the movie in that running time of under two hours gives us this feeling that we've we've experienced that bit of time, one hour, one day, and one week with all those characters. And even though it, it showed me that, the first time I really became aware of it, the first time we saw a character clearly in a different time and space, it it really floored me. It took me back. And, and the nighttime I wasn't scene prepared that, for it. Yeah, yeah because it's, it's only nighttime scene, obviously, now right. in the week section. I, I was thrown a bit, too, and then I realized, that's right, this one is taking place over the course of a week. Yeah, and that structure, I suppose, leads to a little bit of a Rashomon effect. We do see events unfold from different points of view. It's not so much, though, about the truth of those moments or the subjectivity of it, though in a way it is. I would argue that when we watch one of the pilots now on a boat watching Tom Hardy dogfighting with a German plane in the sky, and I think at that point we've already seen how that scenario plays out. But, of course, 
seeing it from the vantage point of a pilot yeah. changes everything. And you're you're, you're instantly in put in his headspace. You are because you're watching it through his eyes and you know that he has a completely different sense of what is actually going on in the sky than anyone else would. We see the hand wave between the two of them we do. two times as well. Mm-hmm. And the one time we think it means one thing and the second time it means something markedly different. Yes, it does. That's true. We do get that added bit of extra information. And I also was struck, Josh, by I said it's a sensory experience. This is what I would like to process a little bit more. But Nolan, who wrote the screenplay here by himself, makes a lot out of what people see or don't see. Blindness comes up twice in the movie. What people hear or don't hear really factors in to this film. And also what characters say or at times don't say. Taste even somehow comes into play. The movie really opens with that Tommy character going through the town by those beaches and scrounging for any drip of water. And that comes up one or two times in the film, but also the last sound of this film is actually a bite into an apple. I know my ears weren't deceiving me. It's a character biting into an apple, and something about that seemed so perfect to me, something about that natural element in this movie that was just about really, at its core, these people trying to survive. Even when you think about the other storylines, of course, the men who are there at Dunkirk are trying to survive. But I would say, obviously, the Mark Rylance character is on a mission that he knows he may not Mm -hmm. come back from. In fact, probably thinks he won't. And even Tom Hardy there in the sky, I got the sense from the very beginning that he was pretty aware that he was on a suicide mission because he's constantly aware of how much time he has and time in this sense is fuel fuel. he's he's of course burning a lot of fuel and they're so far away as the character does actually verbalize at one point that chances are good if they get into any kind of scuffle which they do they're not going to make it back so yes they could still survive but they're entering obviously hostile territory so the whole time he's in the sky he's he's just focused on his mission which really is, of course, about providing support, trying to save men, but it's also about trying to stay alive himself. Sure. And so, I mean, Hardy gives a great performance behind a mask, largely, that is, he's so nonchalant is the wrong word, calm, maybe, professional. I think that's what you would say. But you read in his eyes how dire things are getting. Uh, So I think that's a, a good performance in a movie full of them. So these three narrative strands that you mentioned, I think one of the reasons time collapses among them is because of this movie's sound design. Yeah. And I'd include the score in that by Hans Zimmer because I think the sound design and score, I don't know where one begins and the other ends. It can often be difficult to tell, but in this film in particular, because what sounds like a composition is so dependent on the ticking of a second hand, a stopwatch sound, and also the thrumming of propellers. These, especially in the instance of the propellers, we get visual cues and associations with, but then that sort of deep thrumming continues in other scenes so that sometimes these characters will be sitting on the beach and because of the audioscape, you feel like they're trapped in a submarine. You know, it's that compressed and oppressive. So that is another element that makes this, as you described it, a sensory experience that cinematography The beaches are just massive, Mm -hmm. go on forever. You get a sense of just how abandoned they are. The scale of it is something you're constantly aware of. And especially in the air, I found, where sea and sky are distinct spaces and expanses that almost 
double the size of this theater so that these planes will sometimes, this war theater, these planes will sometimes just be engulfed by all mm-hmm. of that. And it's, yeah, it is unlike any other war movie experience that I've had because of that. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned the sound design, I'm with you completely, and the score, Hans Zimmer. Are you ultimately very pro Hans Zimmer, or did you feel like at times it might have been actually working against the movie? So this ties to, you know, where I wonder if I am overrating it in the moment, because not necessarily a problem specifically with the score, but there is an inspirational segment, we won't say why, where the score does that. The score starts to tell us how to feel. It's not as atmospheric. It's the only right? real conventional moment in the film. It is a very conventional moment. And I felt moment. it too that I I wished it wasn't there. It felt out of place with the rest needed. of the film. Yes. And you could argue as well that the conclusion, the epilogue almost, starts to move us towards a communal, cathartic experience more purposefully, more obviously. Mm -hmm. And I think the score does some of that work there too. So on a second viewing, I might, you know, be a little more picky about how that works. I think I was so emotionally invested at that point that the work had been done on me, if that makes sense. And if I I hadn't been there, that finale wouldn't have gotten me there, Mm -hmm. but it didn't take me out of that place. So overall, it's Understated. There's not a lot going on with the score until maybe it gets a little bit flowery in some of those scenes. It's increasingly eerie and adds mm-hmm. to the overall effect of feeling displaced by time and feeling displaced in this location, which I think it's clear that not only with Van Hoytema, but with Lee Smith, the editor, and with Nolan, that's the effect they're going for, putting us in the place of these soldiers. But it is relentless, and it's relentless in a way that matches the movie. The movie's relentless. So I give it that in terms of feeling like once it starts going, it really almost never lets up. So it has its desired effect. There's a part of me that I still wish it was perhaps just a little bit more subtle. There were times where I wish I could have I could have really taken in in that understated, unemotional, let's show you the action, let's follow these characters doing their duty, trying to survive. I wish it had it had laid back a little bit at times rather than just pulsating throughout the entire film. But pulsating is the right word. And, yeah. And that's like the pulsating I liked. I think it also connects all of those threads so that we'll get the same thrum when some of the soldiers are struggling on a sinking ship will be carried over to the dogfight scene. And even though they're taking place in different timelines, again, it collapses them together and it, and it makes them feel equally oppressive. So I think in those instances, it works. So yeah, overall, I'm positive. How, how about the performances? Because I, mm-hmm. was, I was just saying before we started recording that I didn't know there were some familiar faces in this. Rylance would be one, but also Kenneth Branagh has what could have been, I think, sort of a showboating role as a Navy commander who is on the mole, this Mm -hmm. extended dock and issuing commands. And then Killian Murphy Mm -hmm. has supporting part, but a significant one. Maybe shouldn't say who, but I thought all three of them were strong because I didn't immediately recognize them, you know, And and they wouldn't, and none of them really took over the scenes, even Branagh in the role that could have. Yeah, I agree with you, though. Branagh, one of my favorite actors, and I think he is good here, and I think he is used well, but 
like all the performers, he isn't asked to do much. He kind of gets relegated to staring into the sky or across the sea with great nobility. And nobody does nobility, and at times fear, and at sometimes pride yeah, than Kenneth Branagh. It's so kind of we on, get some shades. Yeah, it's kind of but, on him to indicate when things are about to take a sudden turn because he's he's the one who would notice it first. Right. Yeah. But they're all understated. I just don't know what other word to use. Yeah. I mean, it is about what Tom Hardy is doing in the sky to survive. There's no one to emote to. There's no one to talk to. It's just about his actions. I think that passes down even, like I said, to Mark Rylance, who if you think of him from Bridge of Spies or really any performance I've seen, he's just naturally an understated actor. He's clearly trying to do more with less. And I think that does far be it for me to try to speak on behalf of the British personality, but fitting that kind of stereotype anyway of the kind of tight-lipped, unemotional, just going to do my job. This is a very British film Oh, well, in every way. I was going to say, the movie digs into that yes, stereotype. Yes, it does. When those civilian boats yeah. start parading in, there are shots of these sailors, mm-hmm. these fishermen and whoever else they might be, grim, resolute, just looking forward like we're here to do our job. I love the touch. There's a there's a woman on one of them. You can see, she, you know, she's mm-hmm. got her pumps and she's got that same set face like this is just what we do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so it leans into that stereotype. Yeah, it really does. And, and I think that's fine. So I think they're all good. I think Killian Murphy's good. I mean, I wasn't one of the people at the end of the film when Harry Styles' name came up. I didn't cheer, Josh. Like, at the, they did at the like end. Did a they lot of, do it yeah. during? Oh, oh I must no, have no, not during. Just okay. at the end of okay. the film, we did have a One Direction contingent. But you know what? He's really good. Yeah. I want to see Harry Styles in more films. You had to point out to me which one he was. Yeah, and, he's, a, and he's a person he's I didn't good. recognize immediately. And then when it did click that he looked familiar, I said, oh, yeah, I remember hearing that he was cast in this movie. But he's really good because even though he does get a couple shouty scenes, he mostly just has to behave on mm-hmm. screen. He has to act. And I think for me, that's one of the things I take the most pleasure in watching actors do is just exist and behave on screen as opposed to giving you those big kind of Oscar speeches. And all of these actors are the types of actors that can surprise you. You mentioned, Josh, enjoying emotion when it creeps up on you a little bit. Moment to moment, these actors give you little flashes of those sure. types of moments as opposed to gearing up for some kind of big cavalcade of tears. So, yeah, it's an experience. <laughs> That's what this movie is, and it's overwhelming at times, but I think ultimately in a very positive way. I can't wait to hear what listeners think of the movie, and maybe we can have a little bit more of a dialogue about the film as we get a little bit more time to think about Dunkirk. It is out in wide release this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with us, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. At filmspotting.net, you'll also find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives. Those are all in the show archives. While you're there, vote in the current film spotting poll. I hear Keanu needs some help. It's a Keanu versus Charlie's death match. Beautiful people we've come to respect. We also want to ask you to check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Most of you know this already, but if you haven't listened to the next picture show yet or Film Spotting SVU, both come highly recommended by me. They're in my regular rotation. Please check them out. You can find them on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Out in limited release, one of the movies I'm really excited to see because 
our British listeners have seen this movie already. It's out there. They've told us it's one of the best of the year and one they think should be a golden brick finalist. It's Lady Macbeth fitting with all the Shakespeare talk here on this episode and where we began talking about A Midsummer Night's Dream in Spring Green. This is not direct Shakespeare, but it certainly sounds Shakespearean. The passionate affair of a young woman trapped in a marriage of convenience unleashes a maelstrom of murder and mayhem on a country estate. And I mentioned the buzz, and that really goes back to its debut at the Toronto International Film Festival in September. William Oldroyd, the director, and the star Florence Pugh. Out in wide release, Girls Trip. Four lifelong friends take a road trip to New Orleans. Queen Latifah, Jada Pinkett Smith, and Regina Hallstar. Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Luke Besson is out. And, of course, Dunkirk, which we strongly encourage you to see. Next week, we will talk about the latest Luke Besson and share our top five sci-fi visions. We'll throw out the call one more time. If you have a favorite one you would like to share, send us an MP3 file or leave us a short voicemail, and we may use it in next week's show. 312 Two six four zero seven four four. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant, that's Jeremy Wellhausen. We also want to say thanks for all the help this week in Spring Green, Wisconsin. So thank you to Arcadia Books, John Christensen, Katie McGrath, and Todd Miller. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Have you rated us yet on Apple Podcasts? It really does help. So give us a rating. Give us a review. That way we can reach some new listeners. Our music this week is by Pieta Brown. comes from the album Postcards. More information is at PietaBrown.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Can I chuckle? I think whoever whoever can do a better chuckle I can needs do a to chuckle. play. Oh, no way. Let's I hear you chuckle. Chuckle. I'm not just going to chuckle. No. Chuckle. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> See? <laughs> really good. Yeah, that was my normal chuckle. That was... Could you do that? No. If I don't yell at you first? Because then, then, then I'd be I acting. I think you have a better chuckle. <laughs> okay. Whatever. You can for, you can bully me into whatever role you want. <laughs> my chuckle is <laughs> good. But it's fake. Yours was... Okay, fine. Yeah, but you're, you're acting British. It has to be fake. Come on. <laughs> I like that. That's more British. Come on. All right. Okay. Uh, film spotting is listener supported. Join the film spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire film spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.